Well, good morning. Our uh, family's taken all sorts of vacations, but there's only one place that we've gone back to over and over again. It's the Adirondacks. I love the mountains, the hiking, whitewater rafting, kayaking, fishing, shops, and scenery. And of course, the best part is just sitting by the lake and relaxing in the mornings and the evenings. But even before I arrived, I enjoyed the anticipation of those vacations, getting into the right frame of mind. So on Friday at work, I enjoyed handing my tasks off to others, <laughs> setting my out-of-office messages, and leaving a little early. The stress started to leave my body. I couldn't wait to get packed up and on the road. I liked our familiar stopping points and the place where we turned off the interstate and drove through the mountain towns. I was already beginning to taste that vacation feeling that I loved, but we weren't there yet. Felt even better when we arrived at the house and unpacked, but I didn't feel like we could celebrate our vacation until we were finally sitting in those Adirondack chairs outside and looking out at the lake. So I experienced those vacations even before I got to the lake. I was active in getting there, and there were things I needed to do. But as I did those things, my rest had already started because I had an actual destination. I looked forward to arriving at a real place, at a real time, and I wanted a real rest. So those vacations were an already, but not yet, experience for me. I started resting on Friday while I was still at work. Then I rested as I packed up. I rested while driving in the car. But I wasn't fully and completely resting until I was sitting in that chair by the lake. And you know what the problem was with those vacations? They didn't last. But that's not the case with God's rest. This morning, Hebrews 4 is going to tell us about the kind of rest God promises to people who believe the good news of Jesus Christ and is far better than my Adirondack vacations. It's not only a real rest, but it's a celebration, a lasting celebration. God's people have a real eternal destination. They'll enter at a real point in time, and the enjoyment of that rest starts now for the Christian today. So there's an urgent call to enter that rest. That means active pursuit with all diligence and full devotion to God. So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 4, that's page 1002 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you, and grab the outline in your bulletin titled, God's Rest. We'll begin reading from the beginning of the chapter and conclude with verse 13. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, let any of you, should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith, by faith, with those who listened. For we who who have believed entered that rest, enter that rest, as he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So notice right away what verse 3 tells us. We who have believed enter God's rest. That's now in the present. We don't have to wait. Our rest is already here. Yet in verse 11, we're exhorted to strive to enter God's rest. That's not yet. God's rest hasn't been fully entered. As Christians, we live between those two realities. And we can embrace the tension if we follow the argument in Hebrews. So this morning, we'll look at three points about God's rest in this passage. One, the reality of entering, two, the urgency of entering, and three, the importance of entering. But it's not an easy argument to follow. The author doesn't simply move from topic to topic. The ideas he's discussed in the previous chapters, they remain very important in chapter four. Remember how chapter 2 concluded? Jesus gives real help to believers as their merciful and faithful high priest. He delivered the children of God from slavery to sin, or from slavery to sin, and he delivered them from the fear of death. And that idea is just getting started in this book. The author gets right back to it after today's passage in verse 14. But he's also continuing the argument from chapter 3. The disobedient wilderness generation did not enter God's rest, and the root cause was unbelief. And the convergence of these two arguments from chapters 2 and chapters 3 
help us to see the imp an important reality in chapter 4. Only some enter God's rest. So point one, reality of entering. We're talking about God's rest as something that can really be entered. It's not a figment of our imagination. And verse 1 says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So if we can enter a real rest, then we must have a real fear about failing to enter. That fear carries over from the example in chapter 3, emphasizing that disobedience falls short. That's point A. So it doesn't get the job done. And that notion continues throughout the passage. See verse 6. Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And verse 11. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So there's an appropriate and useful kind of fear for the believer. It comes when you aren't walking with Jesus. Your desire to obey him somehow evaporated. Your sense of urgency about living the Christian life is no longer there. Your heart seems to be growing colder and harder by the day. You often think of abandoning Jesus altogether. That's similar to what the Hebrew audience of this letter was experiencing. The pressure of persecution and difficulty was tempting them to abandon Jesus. Does that describe you? I mean, you may feel like that's not a question you want to deal with this early in the sermon. But we need to start there. Why? Because the passage starts there. And the purpose isn't to demoralize you. The author of Hebrews gives severe warnings, but his purpose is to encourage us as believers, encourage us to keep following Jesus and persevere to the end. These warnings are the means of our salvation. And if we don't respond to the warnings, it may mean we don't truly believe after all. But verse 1, it's not doom and gloom. It starts with, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, this is an assertion he'll explain later on, but he inserts it right up front here to help us get past the fear to the promise that still stands. The reality that we can enter God's rest is good news. But good news alone doesn't save us. That good news must be benefit us. So point B, hearing is not enough. Unbelievers can hear the good news, but they disobey because of their unbelief, and they fail to reach God's rest. That's described in verse 2, with the wilderness generation still in view from chapter 3. Follow along with me. For good news came to us us, that's the author of Hebrews and his audience, it also includes us, just as to them, that's the disobedient wilderness generation, but the message they heard did not benefit them, the disobedient wilderness generation, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But who were those who listened? 
Well, it doesn't immediately come to mind for us. But the audience for Hebrews would have recognized the context and the, ref- and the reference. It's Caleb and Joshua. Several commentators observed this. Those two, and only those two, didn't die in the wilderness. Instead, they believed God. So they benefited, benefited from the message they heard and entered God's rest. But the disobedient wilderness generation was not united by faith with them. Now, do you remember the story? Numbers 13, Moses sends out 12 men to spy out the land of Canaan. After 40 days, they come back. Ten of the spies brought the people of Israel back a bad report. Only Caleb and Joshua brought back a faithful report. And do you remember what the people did? They believed the bad report, and they disobeyed what God had commanded through Moses. Unlike Caleb and Joshua, these people, those people, Caleb and Joshua, um, not Caleb and Joshua, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Israelites, they did not enter the promised land like Caleb and Joshua. Instead, they all died in the wilderness. But do you see the contrast between that disobedient wilderness generation and us? The author assumes that we, like Caleb and Joshua, are listening to the good news as believers. Verse 3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest. That sounds reassuring, doesn't it? But before we get too comfortable, there's something we need to know about God, something that can add understanding to our faith. Understanding doesn't detract from our faith at all. Instead, a proper understanding feeds our faith. Look at point C. God finishes his work. Verse 3 says, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, we need to understand that God finishes what he starts. And disobedience does not reflect the finished work of God. How does he make that point clear? He presents us with attention. That, this teaching about God's finished work, it's sandwiched between two strong statements that disobedience does not enter God's rest. One in verse 3, the other in verse 5. Now, in the middle of all this, we see verse four, in verse 4 that the basis for God's finished work is grounded in creation. It says, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, and he rested on the seventh day. But in what sense can we say that God's work was finished? God rested, but there was still work to be done. He planted a garden, and he placed humanity in it to work it. He commanded them, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But had God given them everything they needed to obey the command? Yes. You could say the work was already finished, but not yet complete. So the picture of this idea... 
Think of the seed, seed of an oak tree. An oak tree seed has everything needed to become a huge oak tree. The creative work is finished. All the DNA is in the seed. It just needs to be planted and watered. And if that seed is planted and watered, it becomes exactly what it was created to be. The seed itself already contains what's needed for a complete oak tree. Yet, when we hold that seed in our hand, can we see its potential? No. Then what makes that potential visible to us? What makes that visible to us? Growth. Growth, which comes from being fed in the proper environment. The seed becomes what it was created to be. The work of making an oak tree was already finished, but not yet complete. And God's creative work is like this. So when we read about his creation in Genesis, we can be assured that he finished his work. He's not making it up as he goes along. He finished it. And it will all turn out exactly as he intended it. We just can't see it as a completed work. Not yet. But we will. And God's finished creation included a plan to redeem humanity. That's the new creation. The creative work was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Remember what Jesus said from the cross? It is finished. That made possible what God does in human hearts to bring people into God's house. That's chapter 3, verse 6. People adopted into God's family. But if we've already been adopted... Will this process of being brought to glory by Jesus ever be completed? Are we to remain a forever flawed and never-ending work in progress? Absolutely not. There's a real day of rest for God's people. And there's an urgency about entering that rest because the assurance believers have in God's finished work is surrounded by warnings. Verses 3 and 5 are like flashing lights warning us on every side that disobedience falls short. And unbelief doesn't enter. So we need to start obeying. We need to grow into that finished work that is not yet complete in us. Now it's time to continue that initial thought from verse 1. The promise of entering his rest still stands because it makes the case for why we need to act now, today. What we do from this point forward is crucially important. Look at point 2. Urgency of entering. Let's read Hebrews 4, 6, through 8 again. It says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, 
Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. When it says that some enter, there's an echo of what he said back in chapter 2. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. Not all humanity, but many sons and daughters. So not everyone, but some will enter that rest. And if we profess Jesus Christ as our Savior, there's a sense of urgency about entering. Our lives must confirm that we're among the many who are being brought to glory. We should want assurance now that we've entered his rest. We should have confidence that when we die, we'll enter his rest more completely. And we should anticipate that we'll enter his rest fully and finally in the new creation when Jesus returns. It's urgent to pursue this now because the gate remains open. It remains for some to enter it. And we can't speculate on how long that'll be open. We just don't know. We can't presume on God's grace and mercy. The point is that it remains open today. We need to respond to God's promise today. We need to believe, enter, and rest today. No procrastinating. Our heavenly call is urgent. And he's relentless in his point about the disobedience of the wilderness generation. He reminds us again in verse 6. But that was an example from the past that he uses to warn us in the present. He's speaking to us today and pointing us forward. And he uses David's words about Joshua's rest to drive that home. So we're on A, rest under Joshua. And what I'm saying is that we're pointed forward by the case he presents. Look at verse 8. Joshua led Israel into the promised land. Did this, peop- did this event give the people rest? Yes, it did. Let me read Joshua 21.43 to you. Listen. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. Verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. So, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The crucial question, though, is whether that was the final rest. Is that Is that what God has for those who are in Jesus Christ? No, it can't be. Joshua gave them rest, but it didn't last, just like my Adirondacks vacations. So the people continued to look forward because it was a shadow of things to come. It demonstrated how God will fulfill all that he's promised for his people, but it's not the final rest. God's people look forward to something, and as they look forward, they have a present call to action. He makes that clear in what he says about David's wording in verse 7. 
David was the author of Psalm 95, which he's been quoting. David says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And you see the emphasis is on today. So he tells us to consider when David wrote that psalm. He wrote it so long afterwards. After what? After Joshua led the people into the promised land. Long after that. Hundreds of years. So David spoke to the people of his own time and tells them to respond to God's calling today. He wasn't speaking about the past. He only referenced the past to point them forward. As verse 8 concludes, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. A rest remains for the people of God. So rest in the future, point B. It's far more glorious than what the Israelites experienced under Joshua. We get a taste of it in the book of Joshua, but we look forward to something greater, and it will last for all time and never end. In verses 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. And he does something interesting in verse 9. He uses a different word for rest than he's been using up to this point. He calls it a Sabbath. What's he conveying? For the people of Israel, it represented the end of the week when they ceased from their work. Or the end of a seven-year period when they gave their land a rest and lived off the abundance of their crops. But here he's conveying, conveying something that's beyond the end of work. It's a celebration commentator William Lane says this, the term Sabbath expresses the special aspect of festivity and joy expressed in the adoration and praise of God. Didn't chapter 2 describe a celebration? Flip back to chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to see this. Verse 10, Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. Verse 10, you see that? How's he doing that? Verse 11, he sanctifies them. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. After that comes the celebration. Right? Verse 12. Jesus leads the joyful gathering of God's family. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, aren't we hardwired? For celebrations? Doesn't it motivate us to work hard today if we have something great to look forward to? Isn't it easier to get through a tough week if we can anticipate the weekend? Don't we work extra hard on a project when the end's in sight 
and we know we can enjoy its successful completion. And isn't it great to throw a party to recognize, recognize an important accomplishment or milestone? We love that. We can deal with difficult things in life much better if we're assured that we'll be able to stop and celebrate when those difficulties are past. Following Jesus is difficult, but it's worth it, isn't it? How do you think about it? Do you think of your present difficulties in relation to what lies ahead? This passage tells us that we can look forward to a celebration. This life will come to an end. We need to be faithful to the very last day. We must hold to our confidence and not lose hope because our sanctification in Jesus Christ does not go on and on forever. God started the work in us, and it will be completed. And when it is, we will celebrate And oh, what a celebration that will be. So then, how should we think about this rest? It's a future event, but is it something we can enter now? We can, but in this sense. Our sanctification in Jesus Christ is already finished, but not yet complete. His finished work on the cross assures us that we have salvation in him. The saving work is done. But we're still becoming the new creation that he made us to be through his work on the cross. And we can enjoy that salvation. We experience that in the assurance we have of belonging to him as he completes his work in us so we can enter into a final rest from God that is already finished, but not yet complete. But it will be someday. And what if you aren't following Christ? You might be able to rest on the weekend. You might be able to celebrate a milestone in your life. But what lies ahead for you, way ahead, after you die? That's what I want you to think about this morning. If your life is filled with disobedience to God's word, and if you don't believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then you don't have God's rest to look forward to. You have God's judgment. You need the great high priest, Jesus, who became a sacrifice for your sins, so he can present you holy and blameless before the Father. Repent from your disobedience, believe, and walk in newness of life. Now, we might be thinking of this rest in the context of works-based righteousness. That is, we should cease any efforts to be saved by works-based righteousness and instead trust completely in Jesus. Now, I absolutely agree. That is a great way to think and a biblical way to think overall. However, the question is whether that is what the author of Hebrews means here. 
And I would say, no. Why do I say that? For two reasons. First, in verse 10, it says, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But God didn't rest after the seventh day, on the seventh day after creation by ceasing from works-based righteousness. And in the very next verse, verse 11, it says that we're to strive to enter that rest. Striving is not ceasing. It's doing something and doing it with all our might. So this promise of entering into God's rest is indeed about making an effort, a serious effort, in the righteous struggle of persevering faith. And we need motivation to continue in this struggle and do what's godly in our lives. And our last point helps us with this motivation. Number three, importance of entering. We often think of God's judgment as motivation for unbelievers, and it is. But how about for believers? Won't our lives be laid bare before Jesus Christ too, who sees all and knows all? And what will that be like? Don't we want to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant? So to hear that, we should strive to become that good and faithful servant Today. That's why we're exhorted in verse 11. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's reminding us once again where the disobedience led the wilderness generation. It didn't lead them into God's rest, they died in the wilderness. That's where disobedience will lead us to. Faith moves in the opposite direction. We obey Jesus. Is obeying Jesus difficult? Yes, it's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible to do in our own strength. That's why the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed in the believer who actually does obey Jesus. And what kind of power does it take to do that for the rest of our lives? It takes divine power from God. It takes a new creative work in us. We need to be completely changed from the inside out. And if he's doing that in us, we can be assured of the conclusion. Celebration with Jesus in the presence of God. So then... Connect this to what's said next. We're exposed by God's word. Point B. Now, I have no idea what's in your heart this morning. But God does. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give account. So God is able to judge everyone, believers and unbelievers, with the utmost precision and perfection. He skillfully uses his word to accomplish that. His word is potent. It exposes us. It has the power to condemn us, and it has the power to sanctify us. What is your relationship to God's word? Does it motivate your daily life right now, today? That has everything to do with your relationship to God himself. Do you see that? Now, you may be the person who doesn't even pull your Bible off the shelf. You don't want to interact with God's word, let alone obey it. That's unbelief. Or perhaps you're the person who opens your Bible occasionally. You've read the good news, but you don't take it seriously. It has no lasting impact on your life. That's still unbelief. Unbelief rejects God's word and receives his judgment and wrath. Maybe you're the person who reads your Bible and does take it seriously. And it exposes you as these verses describe. You realize that obeying means significant changes in your life. Sins need to be confessed and put to death. Relationships need reconciliation. Pride and selfish desires need to be dealt with. All this makes God's word feel like a weapon that cuts and tears at your flesh. So what does belief look like? It means you don't run away and hide from God's word. You keep reading and thinking about it. Although it pierces right to your heart, you cry out to God and plead for his forgiveness and help. You begin to follow Jesus and walk in newness of life. Maybe you're the person who reads your Bible, does take it seriously, and feels exposed by it. But it doesn't feel like a weapon. Instead, it feels more like a surgical knife. You rely on God to change you, but it's difficult, often painful, and very uncomfortable. What does belief look like now? It means not getting up from the operating table until the surgery is done and the healing can begin. You submit to God's will, obey Jesus, and begin to see his purposes more clearly. Yet, there's an even better way. Don't merely surrender to God's word. Embrace your vulnerability. Since you're naked and exposed to God, there's nothing to hide. So why hold anything back? Exposure to God's word is liberating when you trust Jesus, your great high priest. Yes, he judges you thoroughly and completely, but that isn't terrifying anymore. You want his word to penetrate every area of your life, transforming you. Why not be completely devoted to his sanctifying work, 
Strive to see it completed in you. Find rest in Jesus, both now and forevermore. Picture a little child in a bathtub. Her mother's kneeling by the bathtub, washing her and making sure she's clean. Her mother loves her, cares for her, and that's apparent in her tender but firm actions. But do children like baths like this? How many times do they fight against the washcloth as it goes over their face and under their arms? How much do they scream and cry when the soap gets in their eyes? Is it easy for you to imagine that kind of struggle? But now, think about the child who's completely willing to be cleansed. She wants to make sure every part of her is clean. She wants to be as clean as her mother wants her to be. She even says, Mommy, please scrub behind my ears. She's still eager to get out of the bath. But when she's out, she wants to be completely clean. She knows her mother needs to be pleased with her appearance. That involves being completely naked and exposed to the work of her mother's washcloth. You know, my Adirondack vacations, as great as they were, they could never satisfy me. I enjoyed the rest, but it came to an end. It was only a temporary relief from the stresses of life. And I know you feel those stresses too. You might be raising young children, and every day seems like the same routine. You might be working hard to provide for your family, and each week seems like a grind. You could be facing serious medical issues, and every hour seems like a struggle. Or you could be looking at retirement, wondering what to do next with your life. Those are hard things, and we all need God's rest. But only some enter. So if you're experiencing fear, don't try to hide from God. Let your fear make you more devoted to him than you've ever been. God knows us better than we know ourselves. We can believe, trust, and obey him. He knows what we need. He's already prepared a celebration for us. Let's strive to enter that rest. We can rest now. We can rest in the process. And we can rest fully and completely in the future. Please pray with me. Father, I ask you this morning that you would motivate all of us to read and study your word. I pray that we would know you, understand your work, and follow your ways. Increase our devotion to you and to doing your will. May we celebrate our sanctification in Jesus Christ, our faithful and merciful high priest, and help us to go where Hebrews goes next 
and draw near with confidence to your throne of grace. Amen.